John Julian, I'd like you to come down. He has no idea what's about to happen, so right now he's saying, oh, no. Come down here. In fact, he's already, he's already going, what, what am I doing? What's happening here? Yeah, you're going to get me for this, right? I've got to tell you three stories about John. John, uh, just to set the stage, John is one of our elders, although he's not presently serving on the board. So this is actually representative of the elders of our church. And I think you should have a good glimpse of who our elders are and what they're like. So I have three stories, but let me start by saying, although I'm not Jesus, Peter did something to John, uh, Jesus three times, and Jesus didn't forget. Okay? So three stories. The church hired me to be one of their pastors about 15 weeks ago. So when we moved into the amphitheater, Mark was preaching one day. And uh, so I told Mark, let's switch jobs. I want to learn what you do. So uh, uh, Mark always is protecting me. So he gets here at 6 or 6.30 with these guys. And then he tells me, you stay home and relax and get here in time to greet everybody and preach. So that morning I showed up really early around 6.15, 6.30, and you and all the guys were here. And I come walking up, and, and they said, where's, uh, where's Mark? And I said, well, uh, Mark is coming in later. He's being a little lazy like senior pastors are, so he's not coming in quite as early. So I'm, we swapped jobs, and I'm doing his job. And John didn't miss a beat. And John said, well, Mark always brings donuts and coffee. <laughs> We're still waiting. <laughs> that was number one. So I said, well, where does he get donuts and coffee? And all the guys started laughing. So then we fast forward about, oh, four or five weeks, and I showed up one day, and it was cold, so I actually had my jacket. And I came up to the guys got here early, and I said, it's cold this morning. Is this just kind of a cold front? Now, you got to remember that. See me wearing sandals? I was born on the beach. I'm a beach bum at heart. I've lived in Colorado for 30 years, but you can't take the beach out of here. So I'm rebelling to the very end. And so uh, I said, it's cold. Is this a cold front? John didn't miss a beat. He said, no, no. He said, welcome to Summit County. He said, uh, by the time the week's over, the frost line will be down about here, and we'll have frost here in the morning, that was number two. <laughs> we haven't had frost here yet. No, not yet. And the third one was today. I showed up, just wanted to see if he would complete this, and I said, I'm wearing sandals. I'm rebelling to the end. And John said, you know, I hear about 9 o'clock there's going to be a little bit of sleep, maybe some snow coming. You're going to regret <laughs> that. This is what our elders are like here at this church. Encouraging. <laughs> Encouraging. <laughs> now, the real reason I called you up here was... Um, John is part of the crew that sets up here in the morning. Uh, you see two of the sound guys right back there. In fact, one of them is already sitting down to hide because <laughs> they don't like this. If you have been involved, and you can help me make sure that the right ones stand up. Okay. If you have been involved in getting here early and setting all of this up or staying after everyone leaves and breaking it all down, stand up. Come on, teenagers, all of you as well. I had no idea what it took to do church in the amphitheater until I got here at 6.30. And at 6.30, it's dark now, and it's cold. And there's folks here unpacking everything, running all these cables, pulling the covers off the speakers, setting up the sound thing there. None of that's here. Thank you. You're welcome. And the team. <laughs> We have been doing a series on identity theft. Um, the premise behind that title 
is that culture has stolen the identity of Jesus. I see it, I, I read about it, I experience it, and I don't agree with it. And I think they have turned Jesus into something that's different than the Bible. And so we used uh, John all summer to look at snapshots of who Jesus is to kind of recapture who Jesus really is. We've learned a lot of things. And I think we can safely say that uh, in accordance with John chapter 1, with Jesus, the light has come into the world. Remember that? The very beginning. There was a light coming into the world referring to Jesus, and that light has come. We see Jesus. He's not a timid soul at all. He does not at all mind uh, getting in the face of the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. He doesn't mind helping somebody who's broken. He doesn't mind um, saving somebody that has, is in trouble, like the wedding at Cana. They've committed this faux pas, so he turns the water into wine. But he always does it in such a way that reveals himself to the people around him. That's how he always acts. In fact, there's probably, probably a model there for us to follow. Jesus is very bold. He's very courageous. And he moves into the lives of people with intentionality, with authenticity, with purpose, with strength. He moves into their lives regularly. Well, we've made it to the end of John. And we have one item left unresolved. The story about Jesus is kind of concluded back in chapter 19. He's on the cross. He's dead. Then he raised, he's raised from the dead. And the story about him is done. But 20 and 21 has a lot of unresolved relationships to take care of. So last week we looked at John 20. And we saw Mary Magdalene. Her journey to faith was she didn't grasp what was really happening. And she couldn't make sense of the fact that Jesus was not in the tomb. And she didn't know what all that meant until she wakes up and he's standing right in front of her and she grabs onto him and she says, Jesus, my Lord. So her journey to faith required Jesus' presence standing there. John, the beloved gospel, uh, beloved disciple, I believe it's John. John, he runs up to the tomb, stoops down, and he looks in and he sees the empty tomb and it says, and he believed. He got it. He didn't need to see Jesus. He just immediately believed. Thomas didn't miss the message. He didn't miss it. Thomas was one of the ones who said, we'll die with him. Very courageous and very bold until the Messiah died. And then he says, I refuse to believe. What a bold statement. I refuse to believe unless I see the nail prints in his hands, and I see the, can stick my hand in his side, because that's where the Roman guards had stuck the spear. Unless I can stick my hands inside, I refuse to believe. And so Jesus, a week after he says that, he appears to Thomas. And I have to believe he's got a twinkle in his eye. And he said, here you go, Thomas. Take a look. Come on. Stick your hand here. Thomas's response was, my Lord and my God. So we have three different people that have a journey of belief. I think that represents many of us. They're all different on how we come to the Lord and what that looks like. But Peter, Peter is still unresolved. Peter's the one, uh, in fact, if we didn't have John 21, we wouldn't have known what had happened to Peter, would we? 
We don't know what Jesus thought about Peter because he's the one that denied Christ three times. And it's a fascinating story because uh, it raises the question, is there a point of no return? Can you go past a point in rejecting the Lord that's too far? I don't think there is. I'm going to read to you just a couple of things out of John. This is not, your bulletin actually has John 21 in it, but I'm going to read some earlier passages just to give you this idea. In John 13, a few weeks ago, Don Payne was here from Denver Seminary, and um, he talked about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. As soon as he was done washing the feet at the meal, here's what Jesus said. Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss. What? The Messiah doesn't get betrayed. The Messiah is the next king. But they're at a loss. So one of them, uh, Simon Peter, was uh, motioned to John and said, ask him which one he means. So, so John asked, Lord, who is it? And Jesus said, it is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. This is a very powerful moment between Jesus and Judas because Judas is right on the verge of making that decision and what is Jesus' last act he extends something to him to care for him food Judas you don't have to do this well you know the story he took the bread and he ate it and then he left and he betrayed Jesus Right after that, he says, Now is the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking, Now is the Son of Man glory, glorified, and God is glorified in him. Um, speaking to the disciples, he says, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. So I'll give you a new command. This is something new in the world. Keep this in mind. Love one another. Love one another. In a culture that, that had a lot of hierarchy and structure to it, women were nowhere equal to men. They were still considered property largely in the first century. Slaves, children were the lowest of the low. Children were valued even lower than slaves. Because until a child had been raised to the point that their character had been established, they could bring shame onto the family. And so children were the lowest of the low. In fact, did you know that uh, we don't have a single example of parents adopting a child in the first century? We have thousands of examples of adopting adults once their character had been revealed, but not children. And so in this context, Jesus says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's the new paradigm, the new marching orders for the church. This is what the redeemed community looks like. We love one another. And this is radically different than what was going on in the first century. So Simon asked him, Peter, where, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow. So Peter, I love Peter, very audacious, very bold. Lord, why can't I follow you? No, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, will you really lay down your life for me? Will you really do that? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And that's what happened. So now we have an issue. 
Peter has disowned Jesus. He has done something that he shouldn't have done, and, um, and he did it publicly in front of everyone. So what do you do with that? Jesus dies on the cross. Three of the four Gospels tell us that Jesus, uh, Peter wept bitterly. As soon as the rooster crowed, he got it. He realized what had happened. He's in the same boat as Judas. He's got a, he's on, he's got a place. He's got a, he's got a line. He has, to, he has to decide, which way am I going to go here? And he wept bitterly. Lo and behold, Jesus raises from the dead. Three days later on Sunday, the first day of the week. And uh, Peter runs to the tomb of John. And then we have the story in John 20 where the, the, the disciples were overjoyed when the Lord appeared in their presence. But have you ever been in a situation where you have hurt somebody deeply, you have uh, shamed yourself, and, um, and when you're in their presence in a group setting, you're not sure what to say about that, you're not sure what to do about it? How do you, how do you, how do you heal a relationship? How do you do it when it's God? How do you do it when it's the Messiah, when it's Jesus? And so I think he was excited to see Jesus, but I am absolutely convinced, based on all the Gospels, that there was deep shame. Deep shame. So in John 21, at the very end of the story, he's fishing again. The disciples went back to Galilee, and they're back in their profession, and they're in the boat fishing, and Jesus appears on the shore and says, just throw your net on the other side, and they did, and and catch a big fish, and then they come to the shore. Peter jumps in when John says, hey, that's the Lord. Because it's probably early morning. They probably couldn't see him. And so uh, John recognizes who it is, and he goes, hey, that's the Lord. So Peter, you know, he's, he's working crazy, and so he puts on his, his cloak, because he's probably had his all off because he's working like hard. He just jumps in the water. I love Peter. And swims to shore. And he's standing there with Jesus, well aware that he had, he had betrayed him. He had denied him three times. And this has not been resolved yet. So Jesus does something really wonderful in John 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I love the times in Scripture that God could have said, what were you thinking? Why did you do that? I love the story of David. When God says to David, he's already been anointed, you're the next king of Israel, have nothing to do with the Philistines. I'm sorry, the Canaanites. And so what does he do? He goes and lives with the Canaanites. Because Saul's chasing after him, and he figure it's safer to be there. And we learn for 18 months, he lives with the Canaanites, and he begins to fight with them. In fact, he fights with them so much that they decided to attack Israel, and uh, David and his group of men says, we're going to join you. We're going to fight the very people I have been anointed to lead. We have no record that David ever talked to God during that 18 months. Now, the Canaanites were wiser than David. They're thinking, okay, Israelites in the front, Israelites in the back. This is not a good scene. And so they tell David, thank you for all your help, but this time you go home to your little town of Ziklag. So David goes back, and um, when he gets back to Ziklag, another army had come in and burned Ziklag to the ground, 
and his wife and his children, all his wives and children, everything he owned was gone. Then he stops and says, Lord, what should I do? There's an opportunity for the Lord to say, David, where have you been for 18 months? Didn't I tell you not to come live with these people? Aren't you the next king of Israel? What's going on with you? You know, don't you realize this is a sinful lifestyle? Blah, 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 blah. He doesn't do any of that. All God says is go after them because I have given them into your hands. In fact, not one hair of their head has been injured. So David recovers all of that. And I don't know if this is true. This is just my thinking. But I have this picture of God sitting in heaven, the Trinity. And, and the Father looks at Jesus sitting right here and he goes, ah, ah, look at Scott. What are we going to do to get his attention? Well, let's have somebody come steal his family. That'll cause him to turn back. And um, sometimes I wonder if that's not what happens in our lives when things don't go the way we want. Maybe it's God tapping us on the shoulder, getting our attention. I do know this. When you go through hard times, your faith is tested. Your faith becomes real. You've heard me say this, those of you that are members of BCC. When I was holding the hands of my wife when she went to be with the Lord, I was holding her hands when her heart stopped in the hospital in intensive care. And, uh, of course, the tears start to flow. But you know what else happened down deep inside? I chuckled. While I'm crying and grieving, and I just laugh inside. <laughs> the Lord just took away the most important person to me, and I believe in him. My faith is real. How would you know your faith is real if it's never been tested, even if you're the one that put yourself in that situation? So here we have Peter, stuck. He's stuck. And for those of you that feel that you have gone too far, you've crossed the line, you can't be loved by the Lord, I hear that from some of you. How could the Lord possibly love me? Well, what's worse than this? Denying Jesus three times, that's pretty bad. Publicly in front of everybody. And so what does Jesus say? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I think these other disciples. And he says, yes, Lord, I do. You know that I love you. So Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, he appeals to the only thing he has left. There's not much left. It's all been stripped away. Pride, the arrogance, the courage, the boldness. There's not much left. And so he says, Lord, you know all things. You already know that I love you. So Jesus, I think again, just like with Thomas, with a twinkle in his eyes, said, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. So Jesus countered the three denials with three chances for Peter to say, yes, Lord, I love you. So John, Mark, and I will be talking about what you can do for your three. I mean, look at the compassion that's just kind of flowing out here. Now, keep in mind the context, because for us, Jesus is somebody we can't see, and he's a long ways away. Back earlier than this, when the disciples got to the beach, verse 12, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. It doesn't say none of them asked. It says none of them dared to ask. And woven throughout this whole text is this, this sense of 
we know he's Jesus, but who is he really? What's, what's really going on? Who is this guy? He just four days ago, he's executed. Now he's here eating fish with us. And, and there's this reticence. There's this hesitancy on the part of the disciples to, to really embrace Jesus. That doesn't come until 50 days later when the Spirit comes. And Peter, once again, is standing up now boldly. Having been restored, Jesus set the shame aside, just cut right through it, and didn't say, you scoundrel, you sinner. And he didn't say any of that. He just cuts through that and just said, Peter, do you really love me? And Peter responds with, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And that should bring you a sense of great delight that the Lord knows everything about you. He knows the worst thing that there is about you. I don't know that. He knows that. In fact, I'm convinced when you turn to the Lord on the day he saves you, he already knows the worst things that you're going to do. He just loves you. And that's what he does with Peter. So then John goes on and records a very interesting little snippet from this conversation. They start walking down the beach, Jesus and Peter, and John's tagging along behind, wanting to listen. So Jesus says this to Peter, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where, where, went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this, and here's the comment that's critical, to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Same command he gave to him in the beginning in John. Follow me. It's not follow me down the beach. It's not that. Jesus is revealing something very deep, very profound here. And he says to Peter, okay, you've done it. You've been through it. You've denied me three times. I get that. You messed up. Follow me. So he cuts through the shame and he restores that relationship. And he says to Peter, follow me. Now, here's the amazing thing about it. When John wrote this down, Peter had already died. Peter died around 62 AD, thereabouts, under Emperor Nero, executed. We have all kinds of traditions about how he died. Uh, Honestly, none of them credible enough to make a case. All we know for sure is that he died by bringing glory to the Lord. That's what we know. He was executed by a very evil emperor, as was Paul, right next to each other, about a year or two apart. So when John writes this story, he's already had the benefit of watching Peter's life. And he has seen how Peter's restored life brought glory to the Lord, and then he has had the opportunity to know how Peter's death glorified the Lord. And he writes this down. I wonder what he thought when he was penning this as an old man. Knowing it's already done. So now I'm going to fast forward to 1 Peter 5 and read you this passage. One of the last things Peter wrote. Remember Jesus' words. Feed my sheep, take care of my sheep, watch over my sheep. Right? The whole shepherding imagery. To the elders among you, I appeal, I'm I'm reading from 1 Peter 5, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings. 
I was there. I've been there. I've seen it. But one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Remember God said the way he would glorify himself through Peter? Be shepherds of God's flock. Shepherd God's flock under your care. Watching over them. Not because you must. Not because you must. But because you are willing. As God wants you to be. Aren't these great marching orders for our leaders, our elders? Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. You can't wait to do it. I have a feeling, judging from what happened in Acts 2, 50 days later, Peter couldn't wait to get out there and tell people about Jesus. You've heard me say, for those of you that have been here for 12 weeks, I'm a follower of Jesus. Don't be ashamed to talk about Jesus. The world doesn't understand who Jesus is. They got it all messed up. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed to say that you're a Christian. Don't be ashamed of that. Love people. Find where they, meet them where they are and start conversations. Just ask them, do you believe in Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? I start these discussions all the time. Don't be ashamed. Peter wasn't ashamed. He was ashamed on the beach. And 50 days later, he's no longer ashamed. That's because of the work that Christ did in his heart, in his life. The third in 1 Peter 5 is for the elders, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Don't lord it over. When I think about what it means to be a shepherd, one of my favorite, uh, those of you that were at Dallas Seminary may remember this, in the pastoral ministry's office, there's a painting hanging on the wall. I love it. I just love that painting. If I could steal it, I would. Wait, I didn't say that. Scratch that from there. <laughs> I used to go in there and sit once a week. That was one of my disciplines while I was sem in seminary to really think more deeply about what I was learning. I'd go into the pastoral ministry's office and sit there and stare at this portrait, this painting hanging on the wall. I mean. And uh, I'll try to describe it to you. You've got this green grass, you've got this valley, and uh, there's a blue, there's water, a stream, clear stream flowing through it. And it looks like just this wonderful, restful place. And you come back up, and you're on a, there's a little bit of a, a higher ground, and there's two shepherds. And in between the two shepherds are the sheep. They're just kind of eating and enjoying life. And uh, the shepherd in the rear has a, a lamb around his neck with a broken leg, and he's taking care of it. And they're just sitting there, just letting the, letting the sheep enjoy life creating joy, creating safety. So then you come up another level and you realize that they're in this canyon on the way down to this valley. And on either side on the canyon walls, you have these wolves. They're frothing there. And they're just, they're just jumping all over each other, just waiting for the shepherd to turn his back once so they can grab the sheep. And that's the picture. That's what our elders do. They pray for you. They love you. We go visit people in their homes. We anoint them with oil and pray. We help them when they're broken. We help them when they're struggling. We talk about you. We do. But it's all positive. How can we help? That's what elders do. And in 1 Peter, what we find is at the end of Peter's life, we find him saying the same thing that Jesus said to him but he just gives a little bit more detail. But his basic command is the same. Love this flock. Care for these people. 
If you are an elder presently or past serving, uh, whether it's our church or another church, it doesn't matter to me, or if you're a deacon, you've served in the past or you're presently serving, just stand up for a moment. I just want to see who you are. Just take a look around. Isn't this wonderful? These are the people that have made a decision we're going to love the flock. Can we tell them thank you? For that? Thank you. I love meeting with our elders. I do. I just love being with them. I love watching these people. They're a lot like our sound guys. They're, they're very quiet, very unassuming. They do a lot of stuff in the background. And, um, but they care about you. This is a story of Peter being restored. Is there a point that you can cross? I don't think so. It's up to you whether you turn back. It's up to you. I don't know where you are on this journey with Jesus. Only you know that. Some of you have been believers for many, 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 many years. Others are still wondering, what is this all about? And uh, this is our final time in the amphitheater. Think hard about this. Are you willing to say, I'm a follower of Jesus? I believe in him. What do we learn about Jesus from this text? He's not ashamed of you. That's kind of our final thought. That's how John closes. Wasn't ashamed of Peter. He's not ashamed of me. And there have been times in my life where I felt terribly shamed. And I discovered that Jesus wasn't ashamed. Not ashamed. It doesn't matter what it is that you're dealing with. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't even matter where you're going. Jesus isn't ashamed. Isn't that a great, a great story, a great lesson? Culture doesn't tell us that about Jesus, does it? So identity theft. Hopefully you have a better view of who Jesus is. The uh, ushers are going to come down now and they're going to take the offering. We're going to begin moving to the next part of our service where we, where we enjoy time together. Uh, the band's going to come and, and lead us in more worship in just a moment. You know, when I, look at the, uh, when I look at the biblical passages about giving, I know most pastors are a little hesitant to talk about it. I love to talk about it. You know why? Because when I see these commands in Scripture, here's what I believe about them. They are telling me something about me that I might not have missed. So when Jesus said to the lame man, after he healed him, he goes, stand up. Why? Because the lame man didn't know he could. So when Jesus says, forgive one another, why? It's in your best interest to forgive. Have you ever been around people that don't forgive? They're not very pleasant to be with, are they? Why do you forgive? Because a person repents? No, no, no. You forgive because Jesus has already forgiven you. Ephesians 5. That's why you forgive. So with these, when God gives us these commands, it's because that's what's in our best interest. So when God says be generous, you know, if you're not generous here, be generous somewhere. Because it's in your best interest and what you discover is God made you to be generous. So they're taking the offering, and uh, we are very grateful as a church for those of you that support our church. Thank you for that. Uh, said many times, we're just a church of about 200, 250, and um, we have 3,500 people that come through our doors every year, and it's those 3,500 that allow us to do this, allow us to bring in fans, and allow us to just have a fantastic experience. Thank you for that. Let's sing a little bit.
And I'm going to come back up in just a moment and talk about communion. Go ahead and be seated for just a second. As we prepare for communion, our communion servers will come down. I have a couple of thoughts. Uh, I have been asked several times, um, when we move back into the building next week, will we continue the practice of having communion every week? And uh, the answer is yes, we will. And the reason why is because of a fantastic little passage in Acts 2. It says, every day, this is how excited the early church was. So excited. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Every day, not once a week. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, those who were coming to the Lord Jesus. And uh, so when you have this picture of this vibrant community, this is something they did regularly. And so we will continue this. And our job as uh, staff and pastors and elders is to keep it an experience that's an alive experience for you. We are going to celebrate communion together. Uh, we'll have communion servers down below, and we have a couple up top as well. And then you'll notice some people that don't have communion trays that are stand down here to pray. So if you're here to pray with people, just raise your hand. Let me see who's praying. Raise them up high. How about those up top? Okay, several up top. Great. So um, uh, when you come down to receive communion, uh, I'd like to invite you to grab one of these people and just... Just pray with them. Maybe you have a need that you, you need help with. Pray. Tell Mark. Tell me. I'll be down right here praying. Uh, perhaps, you have, perhaps you have a praise. You just got to tell somebody what happened. I love that. Come tell us. I love it. I'm, I'm sitting here praying with somebody who's hurting, and next thing I know, God has answered a prayer. And uh, they're telling me that. Tell us about your praises. Tell us what's going on. Maybe you want to talk a little bit more about Jesus and who he is. You're not sure where you are. I love those conversations. We love talking about Jesus. So when you come down to receive communion, uh, pray with us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, on the, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke the bread, and, uh, and he said, this is my body broken for you. So when you come down, somebody will extend the bread to you and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. After supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And when you come down, somebody's going to say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you, just to remind you. So we celebrate the risen Lord Jesus. We celebrate his death. Paul says at the end of that passage, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And as a church, we celebrate, we proclaim the death of Jesus. We're not ashamed of it until he comes. When you come down, just a little couple of practical things. Sometimes it gets a little congested, so there's aisle. You have come down between or on either side. When you come down here, if you're not quite sure what to do, we don't uh, we don't do it as a church, and so you have lots of options. You can you can somebody will be standing right here, and you can take it right here, and you can eat and drink. You can walk around and kneel and pray if you want. You can take it back to your seats and just reflect on what this means to you. Because um, I know all of you come from different traditions. So we try to make it flexible so that you can enjoy those traditions. What's most important, whenever you take it, is that you're proclaiming the death of the Lord. So let me pray, and then I'll invite you to come down. Father, thank you for this uh, wonderful time together as we close our time at the amphitheater. Thank you for 12 wonderful weeks. Lord, help us to proclaim the death of your son with joy. I love the passage where they're just filled with joy, the early church. They were so excited about what you were doing. Thank you for giving us life. Thank you for helping us to learn how to love others 
and to do the very things that you created us to do. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So come down and enjoy. Next week back in the building, we're going to talk about Ephesians. Let me ask you a question just kind of to prime the pump. Ephesians uses the imagery of we were dead and then we came alive. What happens when a person who's dead comes alive? We don't really have a lot of experience in that, most of us. What happens when a person comes alive and they're dead? Just ponder that, and we're going to explore some of those. I think you'll be, I think you'll enjoy it. Some wonderful things happen when a person comes alive. And um, as we close our time in the amphitheater, it's just been a wonderful time, hasn't it? Being here, and the Lord has blessed us, hasn't it? Let's just say thank you to the Lord. Psalm 19 says that the creation, all of creation shouts the glory of the Lord. If you're on that journey trying to figure out who God is and you can't quite get there, go for a good hike. All right? Go, take your bike and go somewhere. Pretty soon I'll be saying, strap on the skis and, and, and let the Lord tell the story. Creation shouts the glory of the Lord. And Mark, I think you have some instructions for us. Right?